Y'all get two sermons today, basically. (laughs) Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for lowering this two feet as well for me. I mentioned first service that uh, one of the perks of hiring Spencer. (laughs) Sorry, brother. You guys know this twice. What's the deal? Is that all of a sudden I became the tall pastor (laughs) at Hiawatha. I'm like, for once in my life, I'm kind of I'm the tall guy. So. Barely 5'8". That's generous, but I say 5'8". I round up for my, for my license. I say 5'8". <laughs> you can say anything, right, to that. But anyway, um, do you want to come up here and talk about that? Oh, can I lower this for you? Oh, just, kidding. just kidding, just kidding. Love you, brother. All right. Well, uh, like um, I think Kevin said uh, as he was finishing there, my name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome to our church if you're visiting. Glad you guys are here. You're joining us at the tail end of a series we've been in for almost two years in the book of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, and we're calling this subsection of Matthew, the Passion of the Christ, which began in chapter 26, and we're still in 26, we're trudging along here, approaching the cross, and as we've said time and time again, as Jesus has been saying, really, and embodying as this story has gone along, everything's about the cross. When he's born, the angels say, Jesus is born into the world. Uh, because he's going to save us from our sins. His name is Jesus, and his name means Savior or to save from sins. And so that God is here, God has arrived, Emmanuel means God with us. And so the angels are saying Jesus is the Emmanuel, he's God in flesh, and his name is Jesus because he can save the world from, from its sins. And so we know right away why he's here. So everything he's doing and saying and demonstrating with his actions is really bent towards, whether it's very explicit and obvious or implicit and less obvious, it's about that. So we're coming to the climax of not just the book of Matthew, that Jesus has been bent on this and teaching about it, predicting it. We'll talk about that some more today as well. But really the whole of the scriptures. If you start reading the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, uh, we should always have one eye on the cross because God has always been planning for this event. It's not a plan B. He's not surprised. He's not caught off guard. He's not scrambling for some solution late at some point after sin enters the world, thinking, how am I going to handle this? He's in complete control of it. And it's one of the things that Jesus is actually making very clear. It's not something we have to kind of figure out as we read the storyline, he, he, he is, he is uh, not just bent on, but he's at pains to show that he is orchestrating his own death and orchestrating his resurrection so that he might be obedient to God the Father as God the Son, and he might save people he loves, us, who have been cursed by sin. And not just us, but all the cosmos. I mean, it, his, his saving work has a, a, it's a wide net. It's, it has far reach to it. Primarily, it's about us because God became a human being to save human beings, but it also will renew all creation with it as well as we hope for that new earth that he will usher in in the future with the second coming. So where we've been then, basically, in Matthew 26, Spencer preached last week on the Last Supper and the idea of Passover. It was a Passover meal. We talked about that a few times already and will again today briefly to catch some of you up to speed on what that means. But uh, Jesus, last week, he's about 15 hours roughly before his crucifixion. So it's about 6 or 7 p.m. Thursday night, and Jesus is going to be crucified at 9 a.m. on Friday. And so his uh, ultimate betrayal and arrest and his uh, trials end end up happening overnight. And so we'll get to that uh, next week and a couple of weeks uh, after that, and then we'll finally get to his crucifixion. But just to give you an idea of where we're headed here, the timeline and so forth, we're just hours really uh, before his death. But he just had his last supper with his disciples, during which he instituted what would become one of the church's sacraments, or grace-imparting reminders, namely the Lord's Supper, or communion, or some traditions call it the Eucharist, which is a word for thanksgiving, which consists of eating bread. We have it available here every week, and we centralize it. Usually the first Sunday of the month, we did it last, uh, last week for certain reasons, but usually the first Sunday of the month, it's up here, we centralize our service around it. But it's to commemorate his death. Jesus gets really clear. The angels do at his birth, and Jesus does throughout his ministry, but very clear at this last meal when he gets right in the face of the disciples and breaks bread and pours out wine and says, this is my body given for you. It's a gift. And this is my blood poured out for your transgressions or sins. And in it, you have forgiveness. So he's pointing right just a few hours from that point. He's pointing ahead, knowing his crucifixion is coming, planning the whole thing, orchestrating the whole thing, on Passover, to say that this is what the New Testament is. Because in my blood is a new covenant. Covenant and testament are the same thing. So this new covenant that's similar but different from the old ways, the Old Testament that was setting the stage for this time, but this is a new era. 
a new era of peace and grace where now, if you want to commune with God, you come through me. Or better yet, God is going to come through me to commune with you. This is how he's going to covenant relationally with sinners who are broken and cannot approach the holy presence of God. I'm going to die as a substitute. I'm going to shed my blood and in that way remove and wash sin. I'm going to rise again three days later and overwhelm death, which is this ultimate stinging judgment, judgment thing, this ultimate expression of God's wrath and judgment. I'm going to overwhelm it as a human being, but who's also fully God, so that in me you can have the hope of, of resurrection and eternal life as well. And many other things too. It's essentially what he's saying at this, at this dinner. And he's still there. In context here today, I have that in mind. They've just finished eating. And today, we're going to look at some of the more, uh, some more of Jesus demonstrating how much he's fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, how in control he is of the situation, like I mentioned before, again, just hours before his death, still bent on demonstrating his control, showing this from the Old Testament with his actions, predicting the future as well, even at this juncture in the narrative. Then, relatedly, kind of relatedly, kind of not, we'll switch gears a bit, we'll look at Peter's denial of Jesus Christ. Peter's one of Jesus's, probably his closest friend, you could say in one sense, but the lead disciple or lead follower of Christ who denies Jesus. Even though he says he's not going to, Jesus says, no, you're going to three times tonight. And he, in fact, uh, does that. So today is going to be a split passage. We're going to look at Jesus predicting that Peter is, in fact, to fulfill the scriptures because the prophets predicted this. This is, in fact, going to happen, that all of the disciples are going to scatter and leave him lonely and alone at when he's arrested and, and dragged away into trial. Uh, but also, um, yeah, again, just to demonstrate that he is, in, uh, in, in fact, in control. Then the second half is going to be uh, the fulfillment of that. So they're not juxtaposed in, the, in Matthew, so we're going to read the prediction and the fulfillments uh, after that. So we get a full picture of what just happened here. So basically, uh, dinner ends in a sour note. Uh, it's a really high moment where Jesus says, the new covenant is coming through me. I'm about to die for the sins of the world. Eat and drink in remembrance of me always until I return. And then to fulfill the scriptures, all of you will scatter and not one will be there when I'm dying. <laughs> you know, it's like right after that. So it's kind of like this Debbie Downer moment in a sense, but has to happen. And Jesus knows this. He knows he's being rejected to the uttermost. The fact that God is rejected already happened in history but Jesus now in flesh, to be rejected on this level, not just fulfills the scriptures, but it helps to ensure his rejection, that no one's taking up the sword to fight with him. No one is really even in prayer and, and with him to, and carrying the cross with him uh, on the way to Calvary, but rather he is alone, rejected, and bearing the sins of the world uh, through, through that rejection. Basically taking on rejection uh, in every sense of the word for sinners like us, so that we might be brought back to God. All right, so let's read it and fold it again. Remember, it's a split passage, verses, uh, chapter 26, verses 30 to 35, first the prediction, and then verses 69 to 75, the fulfillments afterwards. Verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Now Peter was sitting outside the courtyard. So again, this is all after his arrest and trial and so forth. Uh, Peter was sitting outside the courtyard, and a servant girl came up and said to him, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. All right, so as I said before, uh, kind of a two-part thing today. Uh, we're going to start by uh, reminding ourselves, or if you're hearing this for the first time, that's great. 
uh, reminding ourselves that yet again, Jesus just has all of this in control and what that means personally uh, for us. So if you want more on this, uh, so two and three weeks ago, I guess Spence talked about this a little bit as well, but two and three weeks ago, I spent more time on this, this idea of prophecy being fulfilled and how in control God is and what that means for our life. We're going to see it play out yet again today. And the repetition here is key. Always remember that when you read the Bible, especially if you're newer to the scriptures, that repetition is effectively a divine literary device for us to put our finger on and say, this must be important. Everything's important in the Bible, but maybe this even especially here, that God wants me to know this again because he knows I'm forgetful as as a human being. And so it's here demonstrated yet again from a slightly different angle to remind ourselves that in a a fresh way or a different way, a complementary way, that God is in control and orchestrating everything. So uh, the first thing here is Old Testament prophecy is still being fulfilled through all these events. The future is being predicted by Jesus. And Jesus, again, remains in firm control of the situation. So I have three things here. The first is not so obvious, but it begins in verse 30. It starts after dinner when they sung a hymn. That first clause there, when they sung a hymn. I always wondered for a long time, maybe some of you did too, when I read this, it'd be kind of cool if we could know what song they're singing. You know, we kind of need to know, just kind of get into the, the room there a little bit more and, and hear the words that they're singing just, again, 15 hours or less before Christ dies. And that sounds like that's kind of significant, you know. Well, in fact, we can know. We, we know traditionally that Psalm 115 to 118 was always sung after the Passover meal was eaten. Psalms 113 to 114 usually were, were recited and sung before the meal. This is, this is post-meal, though. So these final four psalms, were uh, sung together by individuals around a table, eating together after the Passover meal was was taken to commemorate God's goodness. And and you'll see here in a minute some other things as well. So that was a traditional song. This is what they're singing. They're opening up the Old Testament and and reading through four psalms and singing through it uh, together. Now, it's a lot we could note here. We're not going to read through all these four psalms for the sake of time. A lot we could note here in terms of how these psalms point us ahead in the storyline to Christ and prophetically anticipate him but here's how it ends. This is, this is basically the final four verses, or sentences at least, of Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. So have in mind then, uh, and, and Spence talked about this, did a great job last week setting the kind of the cultural and festive stage of what's going on here. Remember, this is a Passover meal. And so for Israel, they would primarily have two things in mind as they were eating. If you're new to the Passover idea, real quick, basically what that commemorated was Israel's escape and release from slavery 1,400 years prior to this event. We call it the Exodus. It's the second book of the Old Testament, recounts that event and other things as well. And so God established this festival to help the people always remember. Generation after generation after generation annually would gather to have this meal. And remember, there's a part of the escape from Egypt. God said, slaughter a lamb and paint its blood over the lentils and the doorposts of your door. And this final plague of the death of the firstborn that I am bringing upon the Egyptians that will finally secure your release and, 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 and lead Pharaoh to let you go uh, to remember that and to eat a lamb uh, in light of that. So Basically, Israel, heavy in the air at the time of Jesus' death, is the idea of deliverance, the idea of release from slavery, the idea of escape. And it's just being sung about as well. And so in Psalm 115 to 118, there's remembrance going on, but also, as the Old Testament indicates elsewhere, like in the prophets, for example, later in the Old Testament times, God is saying to Israel and the world watching as history unfolds, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to enable another kind of escape. I'm going to enable another kind of release. I'm going to bring a second, better, more cosmic exodus into the world, and you should wait on me for it. You should pray to me about it. You should expect it because it's coming, and it's not just going to be for Israel. It's going to be for for the world. So the Jews then were expecting this as well, kind of one eye in the past and one eye in the future, having the hope of, of deliverance. And not connecting all the dots, obviously, or there wouldn't be this widespread rejection of Christ. Many were thinking it's about the Romans. It's about Roman oppression in the day where our, our land was annexed. It's not really our land anymore that God gave us in Old Testament times. And we're expecting a king to rise up and physically slaughter the Romans or push them at least out of our land that God did so faithfully many times in Old Testament in the Old Testament era. So what they're missing then is this movement from physical to 
spiritual. I mean, Jesus has already been, if you remember earlier in the story, just a few days prior to this, on the Sunday of that Holy Week, Jesus enters the city to shouts of, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Israel has already labeled Jesus this new king, this new hope, by saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the one. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's going he's gonna to handle it for us and right all wrongs and give us our, our land back and many other things as well. He's going to be king. But, but massive disillusionment happens when Jesus kind of enters the city and walks out of it and starts teaching about spiritual matters again rather than actually taking up arms against the Romans. And so they didn't have that spiritual to physical, old to new trajectory that the scriptures clearly, uh, clearly taught. So what they missed then here, though they're labeling Jesus as this blessed one who comes in the name of the Lord, what they missed, among other things, is that Jesus is also the bound festal sacrifice of Psalm 118 as well. So they're singing about the goodness of God, the love of God, God shining his light into the darkness and saving God, bringing a king into the world, all in association with Passover, we've talked about so much these past few weeks, and bound party-like sacrifice, festal sacrifice as well, being led up to the altar to be slain for the sins of the people. God's goodness and his love is in that. God's provision of a substitute, which was always an animal in Old Testament times, is now being replaced. So have all these things in mind. And of course the Jews are... These are thousands of pilgrims who are, who are entering Jerusalem now from a dispersed uh, eras around the Asia Minor area and the Roman Empire of that time, gathered in Jerusalem, gathering there in the city and in smaller villages outside the city, are all singing this right at, like, right at this moment, basically. And Jesus is there to fulfill it. He is the light of God. He is the ultimate Passover lamb. He is, he is the love and the goodness of the Lord. He is the bound festal sacrifice who is about to save the world from its sin and ultimately secure that second exodus, not just for Israel, though them first, but for Gentiles, non-Jews, and people from all tribes, tongues, and nations who would trust him and believe that his death was, in fact, sufficient to take away all my iniquity. So effectively then, uh, just have in mind, Jesus is fulfilling the hope of deliverance here that's being sung about and anticipated in light of old things like the exodus. Uh, in the Old Testament. Passover is here. All right. Secondly, more obviously, uh, Jesus quotes one of the Old Testament prophets, Zechariah, and he actually alluded to it earlier. Uh, but Zechariah 13.7 says, this is written hundreds of years before Jesus, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So the Old Testament typifies and, and predicts that Jesus' disciples, Jesus being the ultimate shepherd, will all flee him once the shepherd is struck. Jesus is saying, this is what this Old Testament passage means. It's always it's about me. This was written here. There's a pattern of, sheep, of shepherds being struck and sheep fleeing. We've seen that in the scriptures and just by experience that, may, that just happened. I'm the ultimate shepherd who's going to be struck and my sheep will run and they will flee. And so he predicts the disciples just doing that. We're going to see some of that begin to play out here. Again, we read the whole passage. You know what's coming. We're going to see some of it begin to play out here in, in just a minute. Then third and final, uh, he predicts his resurrection, which we won't comment on that too much here today, but he says, I'm going to die, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to die on this day. The mode and timing of his death are, are completely accurately predicted. And then he says, after three days, though, I'm going to be raised up. It's not the end for me. I'm going to rise up from the grave, which has come up already in Matthew, but in the scriptures, Old Testament always predicts it as well, but Jesus is clearly predicting. We know the end. We know what in fact happens. He does rise up. He is raised and uh, the church is born, and the New Testament era begins uh, after it. So his message then to us in all of this, and this has come up last couple of weeks as well, as we've seen prophecy after prophecy after prophecy after prediction after prediction after prediction come true, and Jesus being so in control of the situation, his message to us in all of that, in his spot-on fulfillments of Old Testament patterns, prophecies, his spot-on predictions of the futures, continues to be not just... I am the sacrificial, rejected, festal-bound sacrifice who is also king and who's taken away the sins of the world. But also to those of us who suffer, it is all of that. He's basically saying, I am the one, the one and only, the fulfillment of all that came before. But he also, remember, what's going on here is we have control, this baseline truth of God being in control, a demonstration of that. But right next to that, kind of in that, is suffering, darkness, this goes kind of back to, to uh, Kevin's story as well. 
and how God is sovereign, not just in a kind of a general statement sense, that's true, but he's sovereign even through suffering. He's sovereign even through difficulty. And he uses that. He's a good guy. He's not evil. He's a good God who can use even those things to bring about great good in the world. So the fact that God is orchestrating the cross and not just great physical blessing of just, say, food or something, for like he did when he fed the 5,000, God was clearly in control of that situation by multiplying bread and fish, right? So he does that as well. But the fact that God is in control here of the greatest suffering that's ever existed in the world, the Son of God bearing the sins of all humanity, thought and deed, at once for those six hours. Tortured, flogged, put to open shame, barely recognizable, the Bible says, as a human being, he was just that bloody and that his skin was that shredded. The fact that that's happening and that's the greatest form of suffering, and God is using that to bring about great good, is this, is it, are these bookmark truths for us to experience life and lesser evils in our life and cling to a God who was able to do that on a, great, on a greater level. That's the encouragement, which we can believe or not, but we all suffer. And the call to scriptures, I thought of John 16, here as well, when Jesus says he promises trouble. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the thing giving you trouble. I've overcome the world. So you're going to have trouble because the world hates me, Jesus says elsewhere, they're going to hate you. But take heart, I've overcome it. I've overcome the worst that the the world can deal you, which is death. I've stared it in the face and walked away and won. And now I hold the keys of death and Hades, Jesus says in Revelation 1. It's great encouragement and comfort to know that it's not just these good things God's in control of, but somehow, though he's perfectly good, he's able to use all that the world and the devil brings into the world and even just suffering, darkness, to bring about great light. John Newton, uh, the 19th century hymn writer and uh, pastor, you guys know a little bit about his story. I encourage you to read his biography. I have it if you're you're curious. I can pass it on to you. Uh, Really good, uh, but I'm not going to talk about all that here today. But he said about his own story, and again, I'll point back to Kevin's story too. There's a great example of how Kevin experienced this as well and uh, how difficulty just breeds blessing a lot of times, almost inexplicably, right? Christians should be able to explain this because we believe in the cross. The cross brought about great good. We have an answer for that, but it's still mysterious, right? And the world has a, has a harder time understanding why that can be. How can such difficulty somehow bring good? What's the reality behind that? Shouldn't it, be just, shouldn't it breed more difficulty? The Christians believe that a God who brought the cross into the world intentionally to bring about great good is the center of all of our realities, Christian or not. And so we should expect the same type of pattern to be embodied and lived out in our lives continually. But anyway, uh, Newton's story here, he's looking back in his life, speaking in broader truths, but just speaking about the comfort that came after the dust settled of his suffering. He says, What a comfortable thought is this to a believer to know that amidst all the various interfering designs of men, the Lord has one constant design which he cannot, will not miss, namely, his own glory and the complete salvation of his people, and that he is wise and strong and faithful to make even those things which seem contrary to this design subservient to promote it. This is a guy at the end of his life who suffered deeply, if you know his story, deeply. We all do. This guy suffered deeply. And he says, it's one of the most comforting thoughts I have is there's a God out there, the only God, who's able to take the worst of evils and bring about the greatest of goods. Even the things that seem like they're contrary to the design of God just being good to the world and bringing blessing to the world. Things that seem contrary and a wrench in the gears to that, he's able to make subservient to his greater purpose of bringing salvation to all people, myself included. Amazing. Like nothing can stop him. Nothing can be that wrench in the gears. Nothing can make him fall back to plan B. He's always bent on glorifying himself and sharing himself with us. And us sinners, broken people, who need deliverance from sin, who need him to do it because we can't. So it's also why the Bible talks so much about suffering leading to perseverance, leading to hope, leading to humility, leading to the cross, pointing us to Jesus and reminding us of that. All good things. The Bible teaches this tirelessly, really, throughout the New Testament, and it also fits into this, uh, this paradigm. Okay. That's basically a little bit of review and reminder from uh, unique angles today. But again, Jesus is in complete control and he's intending this. He's intending it. If we didn't have all this prophecy here, the question could remain, is this really what God wants? Is this really what Jesus is wanting to do 
and it wouldn't mean that much. But if we know that God, who made everything out of nothing, is intending this, it's much easier to say, well, it must mean something for me then. It must be important. Wrapped up in this must be, must be a lesson, at least for me, if not a greater truth to cling to, like a life raft in the middle of the ocean when I'm drowning. So that's the that's this first thing. Second thing, and we'll, we'll see some of this spill into the rest of this uh, today, but shifting gears a little bit, looking at Peter now. Uh, so again, at dinner, kind of post-dinner conversation here. Not light conversation, good conversation, but, uh, and then I guess not so good after that, but still, conversation nonetheless. Let me read, let me read uh, verses uh, 33 to 35 again. The second uh, piece is called, uh, Peter denies Jesus amidst effort to the contrary. Peter's denying Jesus, even though he's trying really hard not to. Verse 33, Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. And we read the end of the passage, so you know what happens there uh, in, in verse 74. So it makes this denial, I think, especially pronounced. It's not just that it happened, but this denial, especially noteworthy and pronounced, is that Peter, as you see here on the top, is trying as hard as he possibly can not to deny Jesus. You see that? The vows and the promises and the oaths he's making just hours before he breaks them. How hard he's trying to be faithful to Jesus, uh, but he can't be. He denies Jesus anyway. So basically what's going on, what you're seeing here, is that Peter is not backing into sin unintentionally. Oh, surprise, I didn't realize I just denied him three times. That happens. We sin all the time unintentionally. The Bible talks about unintentional sins. Even the Old Testament were sacrificed for and so forth. So unintentional sins happen all the time. But that's not what's going on here. Nor is Peter willfully sinning either, right? Because he doesn't want to. He's saying, whatever happens here, I'm going to remain faithful to you, even to the point of death. I'm not going to deny you. So it's not that either. Well, what is it? It's kind of this middle road of Peter is sinning while he's trying to do good. He's sinning while he's attempting to do good. Kind of like a quicksand thing. The more he's struggling to do good, the, more he's, the quicker he is sinking. So then the question becomes, what does this tell us about our sinful nature as human beings as well, who are like Peter? What, what's the point of that? Why is he not just back in? Why is he not willfully sinning? Why is he trying to do immense good and then sinning? What is the lesson there? What's paradigmatic of the human uh, spiritual condition here? I think aside from the fact, lots of things, but aside from the fact that it tells us we think way too highly of ourselves, like Peter, that we're lovers of ourselves more than God and we're full of deceit. Again, all like Peter Aside from all of that, it tells us that no matter how hard we try, we simply cannot do sufficient good before God. It's something that isn't just happening here, remember. It's, it's in and through the attempts to do good that failure is occurring. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, who hasn't experienced this war within the soul like 20 times already this morning? Right? I mean, I have. I think before I woke up, I was like dreaming this. It already happened. Like, it's like it happens all the time of... Seeking to do good, but not being able to fully. Or having, having wrongly placed motives when we are doing the good. That war within the soul of what I want to do, I just can't do. But all this other stuff I don't want to do, I keep on doing. It's just impossible to avoid. Who hasn't experienced that a thousand times, ten thousand, hundred thousand times in their life, if we're honest? The Apostle Paul, uh, who wrote half the New Testament, gets at this in Romans 7, 18 to 19. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me. Let me. Just stop right there. Do you believe that? I know that nothing good dwells in me. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. Nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Writing this as a Christian, by the way, as well. Interesting nuance on that. And we see this play out with Peter. He says, I'll never deny you, Jesus, to the point of death. And Jesus checks his watch and says, actually, you are going to, before the night's out, in about nine, ten hours, you're going to deny me, and actually, you're going to do it 
three times back to back. Sorry, you know. I was like, what? Can you imagine Peter listening to that, thinking, Are, did you hear what I just said? I will die for you. I will never, ever, 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 ever deny you. Actually, tonight, three times. The complete ineptitude of the human spirit to do good is in focus here. The complete ineptitude of the human spirit to do good is what we're seeing play out narratively in Peter's life before Christ. One of the ironies, the uh, linguistic ironies here, is the fact that Peter, in the third denial, he invokes a curse on himself and swears that I do not know the man. When he invokes that curse, though, it's, it's, uh, if you know the storyline back in Genesis, when Adam and Eve rebel against God and say, no thanks, we're our own gods, we're okay without you, and they rebel and sin against him, and all hell breaks loose, literally. Uh, when that happens, the Bible says a curse comes into the world, over all creation, and, and especially in the, in the human heart, the, the, the source of curse, Really, and so the word curse is actually, there's some irony there. Peter's just saying, I'm, I'm inviting a curse on myself if this is not true. But in other sense, if you know the storyline, yeah, you're cursed, buddy. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, there's kind of a double meaning there, Peter. You're inviting a curse if this is not, you know, this is not true. But you are cursed, just like me, just like you all. We are cursed in the heart, unable to do sufficient good before God, and dead in our sins, unable to be faithful to God. Uh, that's, that's the curse that we've rejected and denied God. We've embraced and loved ourselves so much, and we've earned death through it. That, that's, the, that's this meta-narrative type storyline that everyone's a part. That's all of our stories. And no matter what your past is, we all have a mess that if you're a Christian, Christ cleans up. And that mess ultimately is denial of God. And going back to Kevin's story, you would say that too, right, bro? It's like that's basically a synonymous with what we all do. But here, just hearing from Kevin, say, I don't need God, I need sports, I don't need God, I need, I'm denying him. I don't care about him, I, I hate him even. Like, we've all said that with our lives, right? And our actions, it's our words or our actions or both, it's probably both, but whatever it is, we've denied him. And that is, that is in fact the curse. The unavoidable curse that we can't climb out of. All right, <clears throat> so that's the backdrop. <laughs> not so good, not such great news. But that's the backdrop, the bad news, the pre-gospel truth that the Bible tirelessly narrates and speaks propositionally as well, prepositionally, into uh, the storyline, whether by letter or by story. Then the question becomes, as we go to the latter part of the passage, especially, and just kind of step back and get the bird's eye view here, where's the gospel? Where's the good news in this story? Is it there at all? Uh, it is, there is. But the, the point, and the answer is, that there's, and God loves doing this, by the way, we've talked about these terms before, how he's the great artist who loves contrast, like a great artist kind of, Painting or drawing or designing in contrast to draw the eye. He loves working in contrast. Doing something back here that's failing so that when he works up here, it's so much more brighter and it succeeds all the more. And we're seeing that play out here. It's all over, this, all over the Bible, all over the place. You could spend hours on that. But it's playing out here, this one little nugget of interaction between the Son of God, who's succeeding mightily and is perfect and is holy and is predicting everything and being faithful to it and going to the cross and never never waning. Then you have Peter who can't keep a promise for a couple of hours. And he's rebelling against the living God who made him, like all of us. So contrast, right? Peter's the dark background of sin and, and incapability of doing any good before God. And Christ is this bright foreground of, look to me. Trust me. Look what I'm doing for you. Gaze at me and place hope in me. So it demonstrates to us then that it's all about Christ. This is what this is about. It's all about Jesus. It always is. And here at this juncture, it's still about Christ. It has to be. As Jesus continues down the road to the cross, it's fitting that it's Peter as well, the strongest disciple in one sense, because he's the leader of the disciples. He's the spokesperson. He's the one that Jesus said just a few chapters ago, on you, Peter, I'm going to build my church. He's the, he's the leader. On your preaching, on your oversight, on your leadership, I'm going to birth the church through what you say about me after I raise myself from the dead and ascend to heaven. I'm going to birth the church. And, and here we are. It's accurate. He's predicting the future perfectly. Again, it happens. We know that from the book of Acts. But this is the guy. It's fitting, dramatically, that the strongest, in a sense, will fall by the wayside and fail amidst their promises to the contrary to demonstrate time and time again that it's not by works that we're saved. It's not by our oaths and promises to God. 
that we're saved. We can't promise something to God saying, I promise I'll live this way, I'll promise I'll do this for you, and come through on it. That's not how we're saved. How are we saved? By God saying, I promise to save you. I promise to die for you. I promise to go to the uttermost for you. I promise to be faithful to you, even when you're not to me. See the, the, the massive 180 difference there. Peter's vowing and promising something to God, which he falls flat on his face through. And Jesus is basically saying through this whole story is, I'm going to save you, you're not going to save yourselves. Again, this is, this is the, the, the opposite, the antithesis of all other world religions right here. If this were any other holy book, you'd get a version of this story where Peter would be the hero and we'd be called to copy him. Do good. Copy the hero. Copy the strongest disciple. Be faithful to God, and he will then be faithful to you. Don't deny him, and then later, he won't deny you. That'd be the message. It's moralism. Repackaged moralism. Like, uh, I think Kevin used that word. Repackaged moralism. It's about us. So, if you flip it around, then, it's really helpful to, to see how different it would be if Peter did, in fact, not deny Christ. If he kept his word. Even after Jesus says, you won't, what if Peter did? Jesus says, no, you won't, you won't keep your word. You're going to for the sake of fulfilling Zechariah 13.7, among some other things, you're going to leave me. You're going to fall away from me. What if Peter didn't do that? If he did, or didn't, not only would the prophecies of Christ not be true, and Christ would be proved either a liar or just wrong, not only that, but we would end up misconstruing, we could end up misconstruing the gospel and making it more about human effort than about Jesus' effort. Right? That's what happened in the story. What we'll be talking about right now. The moral would be, as I said before, be like Peter. Rather than gaze at the cross, gaze at the festal sacrifice bound for sin, or bound for our salvation, but bound up in our sin, and, and look to him, pray to him, and trust in him. If it's not about Peter, anybody else but Jesus, that's the only place we can look. If you really get the dark background, you're going to look for something other than yourself, certainly other than Peter, <laughs> for sure, but also ourselves and say, well, how is this going to be remedied back here? What's the solution? This is a very, very bad place. And this is claiming that it begins right here in my heart. It begins and ends right here. Bad news. Very bad news. Well, what's the remedy? Has to be Jesus. Has to be. That's the point. God's goodness and God's grace uh, in, in his salvation. That one of the images, too, that came to mind, even just last night, I was thinking about this, kind of has some negative connotations to it, but just bear with me, is that it's almost like Peter is collateral damage to the steamroller of God's plan of salvation, just plowing through the book of Matthew and plowing through all of biblical history where nothing can stop it. Nothing can be that wrench in the gear. No, no, no plan of the devil, no plan of hu any, any human scheme can stop it. And Peter kind of gets in front of it and says, actually, I can because I'm a good person. I can save myself. I can vow something to you and keep it perfectly. I'm a pretty good person. I can do it. Steamroll, you know. Right? I mean, that's what's going on. Peter's kind of unintentionally but trying to just throw a wrench in the whole thing. Because if Peter can do that, everything Jesus is doing doesn't matter at all. Because there's, there's possibility of being good without Jesus. There's a possibility of saving ourselves. There's a possibility of religion being the answer rather than God himself being the only answer. Right? So if you put this around, it's actually quite scary and it's quite an antithetical thing to what's actually being written here in the story. Romans 7, 24 and 25. Uh, back to Romans 7. Paul says, after that whole deal about I just can't do good no matter how hard I try, nothing good exists within me. He gets to the point where he says, wretched man that I am. Have you ever said that about yourself? Wretched person that I am. I have nothing good within me. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Here's who. Thanks be to God. How does he do it? Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's how you'll be saved from your body, your cursed, my cursed body of death. It's only through Jesus Christ, our Lord, that it will occur. And so that's the good news. And I think I mentioned before, none of this will actually be good news to you if you don't see yourselves as like Peter. We don't. If Peter's not a microcosm of the greater human spiritual experience here, then this is just a story. It just won't matter. It'll be kind of interesting maybe, and I can't believe that person did that, but I wouldn't. But that's kind of where we'll go. But if, 
if it's really a microcosm of the human experience, the conscience of the world is really present here in Peter. And that's part of the point with all biblical narrative, and that's true here as well. If, if we see ourselves in that, it's incredibly good news. Because Jesus does not see Peter's denial or hear the rooster and then say, that's it, last straw, I'm done with these guys. I'm not going to die on a cross for them. I'm not going to save them. They haven't proved themselves worthy. Done. To stand up, command a legion of angels to come to his aid and flatten everybody. Right? Which he could, could have done. It doesn't happen. What does he keep doing? What's he keep doing? He keeps going to the cross. Right? He's, he's bent on it. In the context of Peter's still denying, the rooster's not even done crowing, and Jesus is still picking up the cross basically, heading to Calvary. Isn't it amazing grace? Romans 5, 6 says, For while we were still weak, not, while, not after we were strong for a while, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly, people like us, for sinners. While that was, that's the amazing news. And if we, if, we th- if we see ourselves like Peter, it's amazingly good news. If we don't, it's not. It's uh, just a side thing. This is uh, actually why this is a bit of a bunny trail, but I wanted to throw it in here because we don't usually say this from up here too much, but uh, feel free to talk to me or Peter or Spence uh, about this uh, some more. But going back to how Peter was so oath-based and so promise-based in his spirituality before God, it's about himself. This is why the, the songs we sing at Hiawatha, primarily anyway, uh, do not consist of things we say to God or vows anyway, promises we make to God. Uh, in the first person, I will do this for you. I promise to live this way. I will feel this way for you or, or something like that, which is kind of a common thing these days in uh, Christian worship music. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's even a good song, but it's our contention that that's not worship music because it's not, it's not worshipful. It's not like Thanksgiving breeding type reality. And so pr- primarily, this time to sing in the first person, we kind of talk to each other as a church and we try to draw our affections communally together up to the one God who can save alone and we have a couple of the Psalms talk in the first person sometimes. Time for that, no doubt. But primarily our songs are going to be truths about God that we sing to him in the second person. Does that make sense? Truths about God that we sing to him, like we're seeing today in all the songs we've sung so far. I guess just the one. <laughs> we will. No, we had a few. We had a few more. Never mind. The four we sang. Truths about God that we sing to him in the second person. So that Christianity then is not about us promising things to God but about him promising salvation to us, even amidst our broken promise-filled lives. Glory to God. Okay, so what do we do with this? We talked about this kind of a little bit as we've gone along, uh, but just to be clear, the message is more complex than simply saying, the point is try hard not to deny Jesus. It's more complex than that, right? Because we've seen where hard spiritual effort gets people in this story. Not through the night. Right? So it's, it's, it's more complex than saying the point is just try not to be, not to be Peter here. With that said, from a, a post-cross New Testament era where we have the Holy Spirit of God in our hearts as Christians who, change our effect, who changes our affections and helps us in these matters, we can't keep denying him either, obviously, right? At the same time. So if we ultimately deny him, I mean, God's not saving everybody. He requires that faith and that dependence. And so uh, we can't keep denying either, though he dies for our, all our denials and is faithful to do that. If we ultimately do that with a choice in our life, we are not Christian. We're, we're not a person of God. We're not in the fold with him as our shepherd. So I think the point to that tension is Jesus himself here is the solution to our propensity to deny God. He himself is. Not trying harder, but Jesus himself is our, perpen- is our solution to our propensity to deny God. God. The gospel says Jesus dies for God deniers. If he doesn't, no one's saved. But again, the timeline here is important. We know from a Christian standpoint, those of you who are Christians in the room, we know that God changes the heart, right? And God has drawn us now to God to be with him in his presence spiritually and with the people of God when we worship. And we are given his spirit to help us not just convert and receive him for the first time, but also to grow in him and to love him and to desire to know him more, which is the antithesis of denial. Right? So, so true Christians will want to know more about God. We'll love him so much based on what he's done for us that we will respond with, I want to know more about that gospel. 
I want to be in his presence. I want to pray to him. I want to talk to the God who made me and remade me in his son. Imperfectly, of course. We're still sinful, but in general, we will have that, that new spirit-guided propensity to want to know God and not deny him uh, anymore. So with that tension in mind, I think there's a proper order to how we, how we pursue application in this passage. The order is crucial. Christian or not today. If you're not a Christian, I'll talk about that as we go on. If you are, the order is the same, uh, spiritually speaking here. The, the proper order to approach application here at this passage is, one, weep over your sin, like Peter. Matthew 26, 75, and he went out, in, in all the accounts of the gospel say this, he went out, horrified by his sin, horrified by his inability to, to be good at all before the Holy One, Jesus Christ, and he wept over it bitterly. So I think that if, if we aren't horrified at how much that we have all said with our words and our deeds, God, I don't need you. I hate you. I am the ultimate determiner of, of truth and what's right and wrong in my life, and I don't need you anymore. We've all been born into that. We've all done it. Some of you are still doing it. Those of you who are Christians, you might still have a spirit of that in your heart. We all do, but more, some more than others or more times than others, we, we will. But if we're not horrified by that, we can't force tears here, obviously. Take weep kind of figuratively, literally or metaphorically, but are you broken over your sin? I mean, it, it's a great prayer every day because if there's one thing that's true today is that none of us see our sin accurately. We all think we're better than we actually are. No matter where we are with this stuff, we just all, we just all do. <laughs> we, we need God's help here. We need God to, to help us look to the cross and say, by the way, one of the best ways to get a good doctrine of sin or understanding of sin is not just to talk definitionally about sin, but to look at the cross and say, my sin caused that. It, it required God, it cost God to become a human being and die, not just die, but die in that manner on the cross. That's how bad my, my sin is. And, and to pray again for God's guidance and help to actually help us feel broken. The Apostle Paul, they wrote half the New Testament, said with complete earnestness at the end of his life, I am the worst sinner of the, in the world. I honestly believe that. Honestly believe it. The G.K. Chesterton, who, was, who said when asked, what's the biggest problem in the world? He said, I am. He actually believed that. Like, I'm the biggest problem in the world, flat out. A lot of problems in the world, but actually the biggest problem is right here in my heart. It's a very, very dark place in here. You have no idea. We actually get that. You know, if people are, you talk about sin of people and they say, yeah, no one's perfect. No, you don't understand. <laughs> Let me qualify that with what I mean about sin. I, I believe I am a rotting corpse on my back and, and spiritually speaking before God, I am completely immobile. That, that's light years from, yeah, no one's perfect, but we're kind of good. At, at our core. So it, it's all a matter of how you define these things, right? And how God helps you understand the severity of where we are. The, the, the complete inadequacy of being right before him. We, we need God's help. We need him to live with inside of us to prompt love and good deeds that are full of faith and full of God-glorified intention. Otherwise, we're toast. The first thing is weep over your sin. The second is a look to the cross. In, in, in order here is crucial. You're saved by grace. And Jesus died for you while you're still sinning against him. We talked about that. He died for your denial. He was put to open shame, all of that. We have to look somewhere else than ourselves if we get the dark background. I want to mention Luke's account here. Luke 22 adds an interesting clause. This is the same story, different gospel. But it says, And immediately while Peter was still denying Jesus for the third time, the rooster crowed, and the Lord Jesus turned and looked right at Peter. And then he went out and he remembered the saying, it says, and then he went out and, and wept bitterly. But I love the idea here narratively of them locking eyes. Of course you're going to weep in that moment, right? But I like the idea of locking eyes because Peter in that moment, he's, he's horrified by his sin and his spiritual inadequacy, but he's also locking eyes with the only hope in the universe he has, just like me and you. Only one where to look, right? He's looking at, at, at the Son of God in the eyes, and Jesus is basically saying, look to me. Like a song we just sang, Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me your all in all. Look to me. You know, it's like one of those scenes in Lord of the Rings where I forget who says it, but one of the kings raises his sword and says, to me, to me, look to me. It's like one of those moments where we look to the leader, we look to the advocate, we look to the king, we look to the champion, the warrior, and we fight in light of his fight for us. 
It's only one way to look. Peter locked eyes with Jesus like we need to and say, he's, he's alone my hope and my salvation. And we taste and see that he is good and loving in his sacrifice for us. And then third, uh, don't deny him. After the first two, in fact, if you're not a Christian today, just stop after the second one. That, that, that's, that's what the Bible says. As God says to you, don't worry about denying, because I mean, you already are. What you need is Jesus. Weep over your sin, cling to Christ. But if you're a Christian, or after you become a Christian, then apply this idea of not denying him. Have you denied him today or this week? Do coworkers ask you if you're a Christian? You say no. Uh, do you live in, in a way that, that is not up to the calling to which you've been called? Is it in any way, word or deed, lifestyle-wise, how are you denying him? Ask for forgiveness, and God offers it immediately. He loves you. He loves me. He loves us when we do that. Point is, live in the spirit of I want to know God better and spread his fame around the world. I don't want to deny that I know him, uh, whether people ask you flat out or not. Or, do people know you're a Christian? So live the opposite of I don't know the man with the help of the Holy Spirit. Know him because he has remembered and known you first. Love him because he's loved you first. Celebrate and share with Share him with the world because he has shared himself with you and me first. Say with Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Tell the world about a God who's not waiting for us to love him really well first. He loved you first and he demonstrated that love on the cross. That's what God is like. While we're still sinning, while we're not loving at all, while we're spiritually inept, in that, while we're denying, in the context of all of that, he goes to the cross in love for you. Someone actually in the universe loves you to that level. Isn't that amazing? You've never been loved like that before. It's true. It happened. It's real. And the offer is believe and cling and want and taste and see that God is good and know that God better in the context of church community the rest of your days. And trust him. Have faith in him. As your ultimate Passover lamb, your ultimate light, your ultimate goodness from God given as a gift, your ultimate bound festal sacrifice, your ultimate king, yours and mine. Praise be to God. Let's pray. God, thank you for, again, today, uh, for your amazing grace, God, in, in all of our lives. I pray that, again, you just help us respond with the balance of seeing ourselves in inept Peter and locking eyes with you and seeing your goodness and your light and your love. It's real. It's true, it's historical, and it's theological. It really happened in the world. And God, I pray and thanks for that. And I pray you'd help us all as a community, as individuals and as a community, to not deny you, but to be uh, not ashamed, but to be proud, to be proclaimers, to be heralds. We're, we will be hated. Uh, you promised that. We will have trouble in the world. We believe in a God who's overcome all that we feel is kind of overcoming us. Uh, God, just bless us as we uh, respond in song and we leave here. Equip us with a gospel way of thinking. It's not about us, it's about you all the time, relentlessly, tirelessly. In every passage of the Bible, it's about you, 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 all the time. You're that amazing. Uh, forgive us for loving ourselves so much that we lose, uh, we lose sight of that. Um, thank you for, the, for raising the dead in Christ's name. Amen.